Our precious and our gracious Father, we want to thank you, Lord God, for your sweet presence, Lord God, that has been in the house this morning, Father, Lord, as we were gathered in the prayer room earlier, Father, just sensing, Lord, that you are here, that you are at work, Lord God, among your people within our hearts. And so, Father, as we come around your word now, Lord, just as you inspired the biblical authors, Father, to write what they wrote, Lord, Father, we want to thank you that your word, God, is uh, the dynamics of it, that not only did it speak to a particular people in a particular culture, Lord God, a long time ago, but your word still speaks today in our time, in our culture, in our world. And so, Father, I pray, Lord, that will you anoint my mouth to bring, Lord, your word, and by your spirit will you divide it among your people for your glory and for our edification, for our good, and for your praise. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Amen. And amen. Now, did you know that when the Titanic sank in the North Atlantic Ocean on the 15th of April, 1912, that there were two boats that responded? Yeah, true story. They were the Californian and the Carpathia. Now, the Californian was approximately 20 miles away, while the Carpathia was much further out. However, it is unfortunate, but the Californian had turned its radio off just about 10 minutes before the Titanic hit that iceberg. And so even though they saw the distress signals of the rockets being fired out into the night sky and they wondered why... But sadly, they never turned their radio back on to investigate. Eventually, they saw the lights of the boat go out, and they assumed that the boat was turning in for the night, and so did they. Because it never crossed their mind that the mighty Titanic could ever sink. And regretfully, for the rest of their lives, the crew had to wrestle with their conscience as to why, why they never responded. In contrast, the Carpathia was 58 miles away, and thankfully their radio was on. And so when they got the call to say that the Titanic is hit and is going down, they fired up their engines and they headed straight for it, running at full steam ahead for three and a half hours, navigating the icebergs in the process. And when the crew finally arrived on the scene, though many had perished yet, they were able to save at least 705 lives. In other words, the Carpathia was in missional mode, while the Californian was in maintenance mode. Which would we rather be? A church just trying to get by, or a church on a mission saving souls? I know which I'd rather us be. And that said, this morning I would like us to look at the mission and the commission of the church. Because how many of you know that our God is a missional God? Right. 
Amen. And so if you have your Bibles with you, then please open up and come with me to the Gospel of Matthew. And we're going to read from chapter 28 and verses 16 to 20. And we're going to read from the CSB version, the Christian Standard Bible. And it says this. The eleven disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Jesus came near and said to them, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Hallelujah. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. Amen. Now, this is one of my favorite passages in Scripture. Because essentially this is what my life boils down to. To know him and to make him known. Amen. Now, as you know, this passage, it speaks of what we call in church circles the Great Commission. However, unfortunately, among some... It has become known as the Great O Mission because sadly some have overlooked this command of the Lord. Because as Jared Cooper states, the church would rather gather as opposed to scatter and go out into the world. True? And so it's my prayer this morning that we will both be challenged and encouraged to follow our God into his Mission. Feel free to say amen. <laughs> now, putting our text into context, we learn that it's on that first Easter Sunday that when the women go down to the tomb to embalm the body of our Lord. And as they do, they are met by an angel who says that Jesus is not here, but he is what? risen indeed and that he is going before you to Galilee and it is there that you will see him so off the disciples go to the mountain that the Lord had designated and it is there that he meets them now throughout the scriptures many significant things occur on the tops of mountains For instance, Elijah called down fire on the top of a mountain. The greatest sermon ever preached was on the top of a mountain known as the Sermon on the Mount. Our Lord was transfigured on the top of a mountain when his face shone brighter than the sun and his clothes became dazzling white. Right? Now, interestingly... Matthew, being a Jew, and writing to fellow Jews, 
He organizes his gospel in such a way that it demonstrates that Jesus is far more glorious than Israel's national leader ever was, namely Moses. Amen. Moses goes up a mountain to receive God's law. But now Jesus stands on top of a mountain and he speaks in God's stead. Moses reflected the Shekinah glory. But now Jesus radiates glory. What's more is that Moses' teaching It was summarized in the first five books of the Bible known as Torah or the law, namely Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers and Deuteronomy. And likewise, Jesus' teachings in Matthew are also organized into five books or sections. And that, book one is the Sermon on the Mount, chapters five to seven. Book two is the Sermon on Mission, chapter 10. Book 3 is the Sermon on the Mystery of the Kingdom, chapter 13. Book 4 is the Sermon on Managing Life Within the Church, chapter 18. And then book 5 is the other Sermon on the Mount, known as the, the Mount of Olives, and it's on the Lord's Return, chapters 24 and 25. So what's Matthew trying to tell us here? Well, he is connecting the prophetic dots of Deuteronomy 18.18. It's where Yahweh, speaking to Moses, says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will tell them everything I have commanded him. In other words, Jesus is the fulfillment of Deuteronomy 18.18. That he really is the one who is far more greater and more glorious than Moses ever was. Praise God. Now, I love Daryl Johnson's outline on this passage because it comes straight from the scriptures. And it is there that we find the three great seas, namely the great claim, the great commission, and the great comfort. In other words, whichever way we slice this text, it is simply great. So if you go home today and you can't remember anything else, just remember that it is great. Amen. And so, beginning with the first C, and we find the great claim, verse 18. And it says, that Jesus came near and said to them, all authority has been given to me in heaven above and on earth. Wow. Now, that statement alone blows the entire circuit board, literally. I mean, who does Jesus think that he is? Are these visions of grandeur? Has he lost touch with all reality? No, absolutely and categorically not. But rather, 
This is the, cell, is the indisputable self-assessment of our Lord. In other words, Jesus knew exactly who he was. And the implications of the resurrection is that he really is who he says he is. That he is Lord and he is God and he holds absolute authority over all glory. In fact, Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch theologian, he once said this. He said, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Amen. In other words, it all belongs to him. Another theologian, he described our Lord as the chief executive officer or the CEO of the entire cosmos. In other words, he is sovereign over public life as well as private life. He is over the sacred realm as well as the secular over the world of business, commerce, education, sports and entertainment, science and sexuality. He is Lord over all. Amen. Amen. Now, this isn't our Lord boasting, but rather he is stating fact. That just like two plus two equates to four, And that water boils at 100 degrees centigrade. And that the earth is round and not flat. (laughs) Likewise, Christ possesses all authority. Demons know this and shudder. Angels know this and rejoice. The birds in the air, the fish in the sea, and the beasts of the field all recognize this. But if only the church would really take a hold of this, I tell you, we would be a force to be reckoned with. Amen. Amen. Now, this word authority in the Greek, it is the term exousia. And it literally means out of being. Ek meaning out of, ousia meaning being. It's like whenever our Lord taught, people would literally be moved because he spoke with such authority, unlike all the other rabbis. You see, other rabbis would just often quote other rabbis. For instance, they would say, Rabbi Shimai says such and such, while Rabbi Hillel says such and such, and so on and so forth, and back and forth. But not our rabbi. Because when he spoke, he spoke with such authority. And he would say, verily, verily, in the old King James, or truly, truly, and truly, I say to you. Now, This phrase, it translates to mean, Amen, Amen. And we often say, Amen, at the end of a prayer or a sentence to say that, yes, we're in agreement with and let it be so, right? But the implication of putting an Amen at the front of a sentence, it implies that the one speaking has absolute foreknowledge that what's about to be said is 100% accurate 
and it will come to pass. Thus, it's a further indicator of Christ's divinity. Wow. And because Jesus is the very source of life itself, that when he speaks, it is out of his being that he does so. And when he does, when we hear the words of the Nazarene, it feels as if we are coming home. In fact, Albert Einstein, the most influential physicist of all time, he once said, I am a Jew, but I am enthralled by the luminous figure of the Nazarene. No one can read the Gospels without feeling the actual presence of Jesus. His personality pulsates in every word. No myth is filled with such life. No man can deny the fact that Jesus existed, nor that his sayings are beautiful. Isn't that good? Glorious. Now, from the great claim flows the great commission. Verse 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Of course, it's the only logical next step, right? Because if Jesus holds all power and dominion, both visible and invisible, and if we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good, then it is only natural that we would want to share it with the world. Right? Very quiet this morning. (laughs) You see, there was a time when people would receive the call of God. And immediately they would board the nearest boat and they would set sail to a far country somewhere, be it Africa, India or China. Saints like William Carey, Hudson Taylor and more recently Jackie Pullinger, to name but a few. They would sense the tug of God and off they would go without hesitation. But the command to go in the Greek, it doesn't necessarily mean a call to foreign lands. But rather a more accurate rendering of this text would be, as you go or in your going, make disciples of all nations. Now, interestingly, the word for nations in the Greek is the term ethnos, from which we get the word ethnicity from, meaning people from various groups, nations, tribes, and tongues. In other words, every ethnicity or people group, whether white, black, or brown, rich or poor, well-off or marginalized, they all belong to Jesus. And so the command for us is that as we go about our daily business and as we rub shoulders with those who may be different to us, let us make disciples because after all, they all belong to him. Amen. And the beauty of our world today 
is that we don't have to go very far in order to reach the nations because the nations, it seems, are right on our doorstep. I mean, just take a walk into town sometime and you will hear a cacophony of different languages being spoken. And I love it because I love languages. And I love speaking to people in their own native tongue. In fact, whenever I'm out on an outreach, guaranteed I will come across a Romanian brother or sister. And I love it because I get to say the only phrase that I know in Romanian, (laughs) which is, which means Jesus loves you. And with that, they stop. They warm and they smile and now they are open to receive a tract, hear the gospel and to receive an invitation to church. It is simply, uh, it's as simple as that. Telling you church, the mission really is on our doorstep. And I love the fact that we are a church that is made up of many nations, literally. And I would have it no other way because this is the church. That in our diversity, there is unity. Because there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all, through all and in all. Ephesians 4, 4 to 6. And so let us seize every opportunity. And in line with one of Elam's mission statements, let us reach up, reach in, and reach out. Amen. Amen. And so to repeat, from the great claim flows the great commission. And it is imperative that we really settle this within our hearts. Because if we truly believe the gospel of Jesus is good news, and if we truly believe in his word, then we will not need to be coaxed or cajoled into living or serving for him. But rather there will be a natural desire within us to get onto his agenda and to take our place in his mission to live in the light of the great claim and to help others do the same in other words to be a disciple and to make disciples of all people for Jesus and yes it's not going to be an easy ride there will be opposition in the process misunderstandings criticism rejection And we may even be branded as bigots or worse, persecuted. But the Lord never hid this fact from us, but rather he told us in no uncertain terms and plainly that in this world you will have trouble. But take heart and be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. John 16, 33. Amen. And knowing all of this, Our Lord in his grace makes provision and he provides us with the great comfort that anchors our soul. And you know what it is? 
I'll give you a clue. It's found in the latter part of verse 20. And it's where the Lord says, remember. Remember, because we're prone to forget. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Isn't that good? What a promise. But Jesus is with us always to the end of the age. Wow. Now, that may be a word for one, five, or even ten of us this morning. That whatever situation you are facing right now, whatever storm may be raging this morning, know, child of God, that the King of kings and the Lord of lords, Jesus Christ, is with you always. And that's a promise that you can count on all day, every day. Amen. You see, our Lord, he knows our frame. And he knows that we are but dust. And he knows that we can be a little bit flaky and a little bit fickle at times. And that there will be resistance from the world. And so he bolsters us by giving us this rock-solid promise that he is with us forever. How? The great comforter. The paraclete, the Holy Spirit, the one who comes alongside us. John 14, 26. In other words, the Spirit of God living on the inside of every believer. He empowers us to fulfill the call that the Father has placed upon us. Namely, to be his witnesses. And we are right back to last week's sermon on Pentecost. Praise God. You see, the Lord doesn't just give us a command and says, now off you go and get on with it. Because that will be a surefire way of failure. But rather he gives us the commission. And with it he gives us the means to accomplish it. In other words, heaven's resource and heaven's assurance That he is with us, come what may. That we don't need to look at the task ahead and feel overwhelmed or think, what on earth could I possibly do in the grand scheme of things? And what on earth do I bring to the party, as it were? Answer, yourself. Your availability. And your willingness to follow in the footsteps of your rabbi. And to become more and more like him. Which essentially is the end goal of our salvation. Is it not? And so. What this all means. Is that the salvation of all humanity. It isn't dependent upon us. But rather it is dependent upon God. And so the pressure's off. It's off of us. Take that pressure off of you. That's not yours to carry. But it's his. In fact, God does salvation so much better than us. We just often get in the way. But it's in his mercy that God allows us to partner with him, to become co-heirs and co-workers in his vineyard. Partnering 
with his spirit in his mission and thus his mission becomes our co-mission or commission. Amen. Amen. And so to summarize, from the great claim flows the great commission. And from the great commission comes the great comfort. Namely the assurance of of his presence and the power of his spirit. And so if you really want to experience the power of his spirit at work in you and through you, then just go ahead and get out of your comfort zone. And I guarantee you that you will know the power of his presence working in you and through you. Because it's like what John Ortberg once said, he even wrote a book about the whole thing. He said, if you want to walk on water, you have to get out of the boat. That's right. And we had a wonderful time yesterday on the streets. We had 40 in the house getting trained up, 30 released upon the streets of Harlow. People just lifting up the banner of Jesus and declaring Jesus is Lord over our town. And beforehand, we had a time of just people sharing testimonies. And we had testimonies from people coming out of witchcraft and all sorts of drug abuse and addictions and all of that. This is Jesus. This is what he does. And freely we have received and now we are to freely give, not to hold it back and to keep it to us because I've got my front row seat to I'm going in, in heaven's auditorium and that's it. Don't worry about the rest of them. No. We cannot afford to do what the Jewish people did back then by keeping it to them, but it was to go out to both Jew and Gentile. And I know that at times it can be a frightening thing to stand out on the street just to even give somebody a tract or even to mention the name of Jesus. But can I just say that he was never ashamed of me, so I will never be ashamed of him. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the what? The power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. And just know that we don't have to be afraid. Because the promise of God in Hebrews 13.5 is, I will never leave you and I will never forsake you or abandon you. Now that promise... That would have been a proper mic drop moment to the audience, to the Hebrew audience. Reason being is because that promise was made to Israel, to the Jewish people way back in the day, not to Gentiles. But now the Hebrew writer takes that promise and he applies it to the Gentile people as well. And it also means that is there, was there a time when God abandoned the Jewish people? Answer, no. Therefore, he will never abandon or forsake us. In fact, the only person that was ever abandoned or forsaken, you know who that was? And do you know where it was? In the Garden of Gethsemane and at the cross. And so because Jesus took our punishment, our abandonment, it means that we never will. We will never experience that, church. Because he paid for it himself. He experienced it, which is why he cries, oh, you know, Father, why have you forsaken me? 
we can never say that because he did for us. And so his promise is always, I am with you always to the ends of the earth. Regardless of what takes place, whether our bodies fail or our mind fails us, he is with us. And praise God that it's not about how much you know, uh, knowledge we have intellectually, how much we have studied or whatever else. Our salvation isn't dependent upon that. But a little child can say, that they are saved because the gospel is so, it's so simple and yet it is so profound that it's, it's for the scholar as well, for the child. It's simply coming to him. So church, this is your mission should you choose to accept. To know him and to make him known. Do you accept? I hope so. I really do. Because unless, because unlike the Californian, I pray that we will become more like the Carpathia, a church on a mission saving souls. Let's pray. Just before I pray, I want to give you the opportunity to respond. That if you're here this morning, and if you do not know this one that we have been singing and speaking of, the Lord Jesus Christ, the creator of heaven and earth, the Lord of all glory. If you don't know him, and if God has been moving in your heart this morning, and you have felt that tug, that you realize, actually, I don't know this Jesus. I know a whole bunch of stuff about him, but I don't know him. I want to encourage you, there is hope. Because you can know him today. And if that's your heart, I want you to indicate to me, while every eye is closed and every head is bowed, if you want to know this Jesus, then just indicate to me by raising your hand and putting it down. And I just want to pray with you. Because the Bible says if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that God, that Jesus died and rose for you, that you will be saved. So if that's your heart, then indicate to me. Praise God.